Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Millions of Americans are traveling for Thanksgiving. Some estimates say air travel is back to pre-pandemic levels, which might lead to a three-year high in people hitting the skies for Thanksgiving this week. Senate candidate Herschel Walker spoke in Georgia yesterday. He brought along some reinforcements for his approaching December battle against Senator Raphael Warnock. Rampant problems with printers and tabulators, wait times numbering in the hours, and voters giving up in desperation. That's the conclusion from a new report on voting centers in Maricopa County, Arizona. We have the details. Several House races are still uncalled two weeks after the election. Ballots are still being counted in California, and Alaska's voting system is also part of the reason. Millions of people are expected to travel for Thanksgiving this weekend. Numbers might hit a three-year high with air travel being back to pre-pandemic levels. Some airports are seeing the increase in passengers already. Here's more. Busy scenes at LAX Airport in Southern California this week as millions of people are expected to visit family and friends for Thanksgiving. Uh, I definitely left early. I know this is like the worst and most hectic time to travel, So, especially in LA. So. Nearly 55 million Americans are expected to take to the roads, skies, and rails for the holiday. Air travel is estimated to have recovered to about 99 percent of 2019 levels before the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanksgiving Eve on Wednesday tends to be the busiest day. However, the option to work remotely has allowed many Americans to stretch out their trips and avoid the last day rush. A spokesperson for Houston's airport on Tuesday confirmed that people were already hitting the skies. When it comes to Thanksgiving holiday travel, Houston airports has seen a larger crowd than it did in 2019. We're expecting to welcome close to 2.3 million passengers over the extended holiday travel season. An increase in people traveling also means an increase of transported goods, of which some are not allowed on planes, as a customs and agricultural specialist with Houston's airport explains. There usually is an increase in contraband um, for the main reason that a lot of times people give them to their relatives, give items to them that are not allowed to bring home because it's usually something that they feel like they can't get here or it's not as good as where they're coming from, from home. Back at LAX, a spokesperson explains that even though travel stretches out over the entire week, there's one day on which it might all come together. Our busiest travel day is going to be the day that everyone is returning home, and that's the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And that day we can expect to see about 215,000 people using the airport. Flight delays and cancellations were a problem during U.S. summer travel, but airlines say they're better prepared to handle the holiday travel rush for Thanksgiving. United said it's on track to hire 15,000 employees this year, while Delta said it's cut its schedule and increased boarding time. Federal officials say they have enough staffing to handle holiday travel as well. There's also a rise in demand for less expensive travel options, including buses and trains. It's not like the airports. Uh, I haven't done a bus since I was a teenager, so I can't even, you know, comprehend what it is like. On a... But the Amtrak was nice. The train station seems pretty and relatively empty. Uh, good experience so far. It's estimated that more than 1.4 million travelers are going out of town for Thanksgiving by bus, train, or cruise ship this year. So far, it's smooth sailing for the airline industry. According to the FlightAware tracking site, only 28 flights were canceled Wednesday morning. Analysts say the day before Thanksgiving will be the busiest travel day of this holiday weekend, and the weather isn't causing any major issues. However, that might not be the case over the weekend. Forecasters say heavy rains are expected in the Northeast and Great Lakes areas on Sunday. That could cause some flights to be delayed or canceled. And shopping for Thanksgiving dinner this year is a lot more expensive than last. It's easy to blame inflation, but the farmers who put the food on the Thanksgiving table face multiple market mechanics. Here's a look at how it all adds up for them and for you. Behind every green and bean from the Carranza family farm is a lengthy to-do list. Between the seed and the table, there's a lot that goes on. Jennifer Carranza pitches in all over these 10 acres in Camarillo, California, including running the numbers. So she knows how much the cost of growing vegetables and flowers for five farmers markets has gone up recently. 
from seed and water supply to gas to transport goods for sale and labor. It's a lot of meticulous work, a lot of repetitive movement of harvesting these, whether it's a bean, if it's a radish, a carrot. An annual survey by the American Farm Bureau finds the cost of a traditional Thanksgiving dinner will be 20% higher this year than last. Their survey of 11 ingredients to make a meal for a party of 10 saw the overall cost increase to $64.05 from $53.31 in 2021. Farmers facing multiple economic pressures. You go to the grocery store to feed your family, your price has gone up. My family is 20,000 turkeys. So exponentially, my, my grocery bill has gone up. At the Shonuff Turkey Farm in Fulton, Maryland, owner Chris Borer says the cost of feeding 20,000 birds at his family operation and the labor for maintaining them through a busy summer into fall are his biggest budget inputs. People expect to make more to do the same jobs because their groceries are costing more. So the cycle is just continuous. Last year, someone talked to me and said, this will be the most expensive Thanksgiving ever. That was last year until we got to this year. Shonoff raises the same numbers of turkeys each year, but different sizes, anticipating what customers will demand. The past couple years with the pandemic, people were having smaller gatherings, so we sold a lot of 10 to 14 pound turkeys. We've seen a lot of the people now raising to like a 14 to 18 pound turkey, because I believe they're gonna have more people at their gatherings. And larger birds need more feed. Still, Boer says it's all worth it when families come back every Thanksgiving, and Carranza says it's an honor to set the table for so many feasts. It makes us happy to know that it'll be feeding someone and it'll make someone happy. A gunman opened fire last night inside a Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia, killing six victims. Police say the suspect was a Walmart employee. Six victims have died. Four victims are in area hospitals with conditions unknown at this time. And the suspect is dead from what we believe was a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The shooting took place Tuesday night. Police were called to the scene of the incident shortly after 10 p.m. and declared the scene safe about an hour later. A witness said the gunman opened fire on her fellow employees gathered in the break room. The witness also said the shooter was her manager and that he didn't say a word while opening fire. Police have yet to identify the suspect and the victims, but they said the shooter used a pistol. Police have obtained a search warrant to the suspect's home and cleared the house. So far, there's no word about a possible motive. Senate candidate Herschel Walker's bus tour made a stop in Powder Springs, Georgia yesterday. He is running against Senator Raphael Warnock in the Senate runoff election. Walker was joined by Senator Lindsey Graham and Senator Ted Cruz. And today's Daniel Monahan has the story. God bless the great state of Georgia! Senator Cruz talked about gratitude, how it's important to be grateful for living in the greatest country in the world. Let me tell you, at a time of Thanksgiving, makes me think of Washington, D.C., because there are a whole lot of turkeys up there. He addressed the economy and inflation. It's so bad, Antifa can't afford bricks. Cruz then made some remarks about crime. He bemoaned what he called skyrocketing murder and carjacking rates. He placed the blame on the shoulders of Democrats for what he called George Soros prosecutors that let violent criminals go. Lindsey Graham said there is no more important time than now for America and Georgians. Schumer said this week a 50-50 Senate would slow him down. Here's my message, let's slow Schumer down. Herschel Walker spoke about his childhood. He addressed being overweight and having a speech impediment as a child. He says he didn't speak up in a classroom for four years and that he experienced being bullied. He talked about mental illness and spending time in a hospital. But he says God had a plan for him. But because I became born again, I started realizing that we all fall short of the glory of God. He says he asked God for forgiveness, was released from the hospital, and his life soon blossomed. He built a company that became one of the largest minority-owned food service businesses. Walker criticized his opponent and politicians in general for trying to divide people based on race. The book I read, is said that a house divided cannot stand. And the book I read, I can tell you God doesn't know about your skin color. He knows about your heart. He also addressed calls to defund the police and low morale and recruitment in law enforcement. No, 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 not on my watch. Not on my watch. We're going to support all men and women in blue. The runoff election will be held on December 6th. 
If Walker wins, the Senate will be divided 50-50, but Vice President Harris will still hold the tie-breaking vote. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Returning now to the ongoing election saga in Arizona, a memo was published detailing the findings of nearly a dozen attorneys who visited voting sites in Maricopa County on Election Day. It describes widespread problems with tabulation equipment, long lines, and voters leaving in frustration. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more. We were there. We were there. Several election workers and Arizona residents testified before the Maricopa Board of Supervisors on the issues mentioned in the memo. We had 1,218 ballots. We had only 1,018 voters that checked in. The discrepancy and the number of physical ballots that I had, they came from somewhere. We had physically had them. They were not voters that walked in and checked in. We had 200 more ballots than voters. The memo was written by attorney Mark Sonenklar. He summarized the findings of 11 attorneys working with the Republican National Committee's Election Integrity Program in Maricopa County. It concludes that 72 of the 115 vote centers the attorneys visited experienced material problems. Sonenklar says the printer and tabulator failures and the resulting long lines at a majority of vote centers led to significant voter suppression. That impacted Republican votes more than Democrat ones because Republican voters significantly outnumbered Democrat voters in the county on Election Day. This Arizona resident addressed Board of Supervisors Chairman Bill Gates and recorder Stephen Richer. You both have lost all credibility in any shred of integrity to conduct free, Again, fair, we're not, we're, we're, no outbursts, free, fair, and transparent elections here in Maricopa County. When you both opened in 2021 a political action committee to specifically defeat MAGA candidates. She told them that it is not just a conflict of interest, but rather a specific agenda and pre-bias going into the elections. A post-election survey of volunteers participating in the Arizona midterm elections was posted at whoscounting.us. It asked how confident people were that the election results in the state were completely accurate and honest. Around 84% responded not confident at all, while only 1% responded very confident. The memo states that on account of the long waiting lines, voters could have become frustrated and left without voting. Maricopa Chairman Bill Gates says that despite the problems that occurred, all votes were counted. He says the county had finished counting all legal ballots during the election and would hold a public meeting to canvass the election on November 28th. He assured there would be no delays or games and the board would act according to state law. Republican candidate Carrie Lake has not conceded the election to Katie Hobbs and is exploring her legal options. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. It's been two weeks since Election Day and a number of House races are yet to be called. Let's take a look at where they are and how the candidates are doing. Three House races remained uncalled as of Wednesday, November 23rd. They are California's 13th Congressional District, Colorado's 3rd District, and Alaska's at-large district. In California's 13th District, Republican candidate John Duarte is leading Democratic candidate Adam Gray by just under 600 votes. According to data from Decision Desk HQ, an estimated 88% of the votes have been counted. This is an open seat, and neither of the candidates are incumbents. In Colorado's 3rd District, Democratic challenger Adam Frisch last week conceded to Republican incumbent Lauren Boebert. They are separated by over 500 votes. But the Associated Press and other outlets have not yet called the race for Boebert. The race qualifies for a recount under Colorado law because the margin is so small. But the two candidates said they are not calling for a recount. And lastly, Alaska's lone at-large House seat is still waiting to be called. Democrat Congresswoman Mary Peltola holds a lead over two Republican candidates, Sarah Palin and Nick Begich. Peltola is near 49 percent, Palin is just under 26 percent, and Begich is at about 23.5 percent as of Wednesday. An estimated 91 percent of the votes are in. In Alaska's ranked choice system, a candidate has to get a majority of voters' first preferences to win outright without any more rounds. Peltola is short of the 50 percent needed to avoid a second round. And earlier this week, two other House races in California were called. In the 22nd Congressional District, Republican incumbent David Valadeo defeated Democratic challenger Rudy Salas. Valadeo was one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach former President Trump last year. And on Tuesday, California's 3rd District was called for Republican candidate Kevin Kiley. This is an open seat after redistricting. 
As of Wednesday, Republicans have gained control of 220 House seats, with Democrats controlling 212 and three uncalled races. The Texas Supreme Court has determined what to do about votes that were cast past the normal deadline on Election Day. Over 2,000 people voted during an extended one-hour period of voting in Harris County. The court has ordered the county to count those votes and determine if it would change the results of any of the races or propositions on the ballot. The court said to keep the counts separate. That way, the parties involved can see if the late votes could change the outcome and decide if they want to take further legal action. During the extended voting period on Election Day, polls were open until 8 p.m., one hour past the 7 p.m. legally required closing time, because civil rights groups complained that polls opened too late that day. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton says the extension violated Texas law, and so the votes cast during the extra hour shouldn't be counted. Next, we delve into the nuts and bolts of the Justice Department's appointment of a special counsel for investigations of former President Trump. Our next guest outlines the legality of it, the counsel's record, and conflict of interest concerns. Joining us now is Mike Davis, the founder and president of the Article 3 Project. Mike is also the former chief counsel for nominations to Senate Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley. Really great having you back on for analysis, Mike. Thank you for having me. Take us on a deep dive here. The DOJ has appointed a special counsel for probes into classified documents at Trump's Mar-a-Lago and the former president's efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. What is the legality of it? Can it be justified? And is this political persecution? Well, the problem is is that in order to investigate a crime, it has to be a crime. And what Attorney General Merrick Garland is doing here is having his special counsel, Jack Smith, investigate non-crimes. It is not a crime to object to presidential elections. It's specifically permitted by uh, federal statute. If it were a crime, Democrats would be in jail for objecting to Republican presidential wins uh, when they objected in 1969, 2001, 2005, and 2017. It's also not a crime for presidents to take personal copies of their records when they leave office. That is specifically contemplated by the presidential Records Act, and if it were a crime, Bill Clinton would be in jail for having eight years of highly classified audio recordings of his presidency and his sock drawer. So you have to step back and say that Attorney General Merrick Garland is appointing a special counsel to look at non-crimes, and why hasn't Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed a special counsel to look at smoking gun evidence of his boss, President Biden's actual crimes, where we have evidence that President Biden, his son Hunter, and his brother James were on the Chinese and Ukrainian payrolls. That could be tax evasion, that could be uh, a FARA violation, it could be a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violation. There's uh, issues with national security. Why has Garland appointed a special counsel to look at his boss's political opponent, but not his boss? And Mike, thanks for breaking down the legality of this. The Wall Street Journal calls special counsel Jack Smith a political independent. And the outlet says his appointment reflects the sensitivity of A.G. Garland overseeing any investigation into Trump. What is your reaction to this? That's just nonsense. We saw, again, that Jack Smith uh, was the was appointed by Attorney General Eric Holder uh, in 2010 to run the public integrity section. Jack Smith Uh, used his power to take down Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell on a a bogus corruption theory when it was, uh, when Bob McDonnell was running, uh, could have been a potential Republican presidential candidate. The Supreme Court overturned Jack Smith's corruption, uh, corruption charges eight to nothing. It would have been nine to nothing, but Justice Scalia passed away uh, after the Supreme Court took the case. It's very hard to lose uh, unanimously in the Supreme Court. Jack Smith found the way. Uh, he's also involved with Lois Lerner's, uh, uh, the Lois Lerner IRS scandal. Jack Smith worked hand in glove with Lois Lerner. His wife is a, a Biden donor twice, a big time Biden donor. His wife produced a video for the Obamas. And so there's not even an appearance of neutrality here with Jack Smith. It's good that you mentioned Jack Smith's record. Now, and this is a question that's on a lot of people's minds. Can we expect Smith to be impartial, given that his wife reportedly worked on a film about former First Lady Michelle Obama and donated to President Biden's 2020 campaign? It certainly raises the appearance of partisanship for Jack Smith. And remember, the Democrats, including Senate Democrats, are going after Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas for his wife Jenny's personal political 
views. They are calling for Justice Thomas to recuse. They think it's an ethical problem because of his uh, Jenny's political views. So why wouldn't that same standard apply to Jack Smith and his wife? Mike Davis, founder and president of the Article 3 Project. Always great speaking with you. Thank you very much. Coming up, President Biden has some news for those with federal student loans. Find out what moves he's making amid legal challenges to his loan forgiveness program. We have that and more just after this break. If you have federal student loans, you won't have to resume payments on January 1st. That's because the Biden administration is extending the pause. Here's what President Biden had to say about it yesterday. I'm completely confident my plan is legal. But right now, it's on hold because of these lawsuits. The Secretary of Education is extending the pause on student loan payments while we seek relief from the courts, but no later than June 30, 2023. Payments will resume 60 days after the pause ends. The pause has already been extended six times. Loan payments were first put on hold by the Trump administration in early 2020. That was due to the pandemic as a relief effort. Biden's student debt relief program means to cancel hundreds of billions of dollars in loans, but it's facing several court battles. A federal judge struck it down, and an appeals court is blocking it while a separate case plays out. The Justice Department is asking the Supreme Court to allow Biden's plan to take effect amid the legal challenges. The high court says it wants to hear from plaintiffs by today. The pause will last until the Supreme Court decides the case or until June 30th, whichever comes first. Interest rates will remain at 0% until repayments start. A Democrat district attorney in Texas is rescinding his policy on theft. He had previously decided not to prosecute thefts of items valued between $100 and $750. The Dallas County DA, John Crusoe, says his plan was meant to reduce incarcerations, but he says data now shows the policy had no effect on crime, and that his reversal keeps his campaign promise to revisit the policy if re-elected. Governor Greg Abbott and Attorney General Ken Paxton sent an open letter to the DA in 2019 asking him to reconsider his so-called justice reform policies. They reminded him of his oath to enforce the law and that criminal district attorneys are not granted the power to rewrite the law. They advised him to leave that process up to lawmakers. Crusoe says he's heard people's concerns and that the policy change will take effect immediately. Several Texas lawmakers are proposing bills to make fentanyl test strips legal. Currently, the test strips are classified as drug paraphernalia in the state. Fentanyl test strips are part of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's harm reduction strategy to reduce overdose deaths. The small strips of paper can detect the presence of fentanyl in various types of drugs. Three Democrats and a Republican have filed bills to decriminalize the test strips in the Texas state legislature. Fentanyl-related deaths have increased significantly over the last three years in Texas. Advocates for the bill say the change in the law would save lives. The Texas governor says fentanyl is the single deadliest drug the nation has ever encountered, and its influx is a byproduct of President Biden's border policies. A Los Angeles jury rejected a lawsuit seeking $55 million in the death of a former college football player. His widow says the NCAA failed to protect him from repeated head trauma. Question one, did the NCAA do something or fail to do something that unreasonably increased the risks to Matthew Key over and above those inherent in college football? No. Answer question two. Question two, did the, N- did the NCAA unreasonably fail to take a measure that would have minimized the risk to Matthew Gee without altering the essential nature of college football? No. Matthew Gee was a linebacker on the 1990 Rose Bowl winning University of Southern California Trojans. Lawyers for his widow say he endured an estimated 6,000 hits as a college athlete. They allege these impacts caused permanent brain damage and led to cocaine and alcohol abuse that eventually killed him at age 49. The NCAA is the governing body of U.S. college sports and said it had nothing to do with Guy's death. The jury voted in favor of the NCAA. Guy was one of five linebackers on the 1989 Trojan squad who died before turning 50. 
all displayed signs of mental deterioration associated with head trauma. Jurors were not allowed to hear testimony about Guy's deceased teammates. Hundreds of wrongful death and personal injury lawsuits have been brought by college football players against the NCAA in the past decade, but Guy's was the first one to reach a jury. The suspect in the weekend killings of four Chinese nationals at a marijuana farm in Oklahoma was arrested by officers in South Florida. Wu Chen was taken into custody without incident by Miami Beach police. He will be charged with murder and shooting with intent to kill and faces extradition to Oklahoma. Authorities say the victims, three men and one woman, were executed on the 10-acre property and discovered Sunday night. A fifth victim, who is also a Chinese citizen, was wounded and taken to a hospital. Authorities say the victims were not identified publicly and next-of-kin notification was still pending because of a language barrier. They do not think this is a random incident. Imposters are topping the list of telemarketing calls that U.S. consumers would much rather never get. That's according to the latest Do Not Call Registry list released on Monday. It says more than 280,000 complaints were lodged in the past fiscal year about telemarketers posing as someone they're not. These can be either live or robocalls. The callers most often pose as someone from the IRS or the Social Security Administration, but it's also common for them to try to sell warranties or protection plans, as well as medical or prescription-related things. The Do Not Call Registry protects consumers from receiving most legal telemarketing calls. More than two and a half million people signed up with it in the past fiscal year, so the list now has more than 246 million phone numbers. And still to come, NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg is cautioning Western countries about depending on China. Meanwhile, Chinese investments in global ports are raising alarms. That and more after the break. NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg warned this week that Western countries must be careful not to create new dependencies on China. And as China invests in overseas ports, security fears rise. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more. Stoltenberg was speaking at a NATO parliamentary assembly in Madrid. We see growing Chinese efforts to control our critical infrastructure, supply chains and key industrial sectors. He remarked that the West cannot give authoritarian regimes any chance to exploit their vulnerabilities and undermine it. Chinese rare earth minerals are present everywhere, including in our phones, our cars and our military equipment. Stoltenberg said the spending of 2% of GDP on defense should be a floor and not the ceiling for defense investments from allies. Meanwhile, Chinese companies are increasing their stakes in foreign ports around the world. According to the Wall Street Journal, Chinese and Hong Kong-based firms now hold stakes in 95 foreign ports. Such a network of ports could facilitate the Chinese Navy carrying out military operations without having to build up a system of bases. Meanwhile, cyber attacks are also increasingly in the focus of security agencies. Retired U.S. General Ben Hodges says a cyber attack on the German ports of Bremerhaven or Hamburg would severely impede NATO efforts to send military reinforcements to allies. Cyber protection for uh, transportation infrastructure, that's, that's just as important as having missile defense systems to protect uh, Bremerhaven, for example. The European Commission proposed an action plan to bolster cyber defense earlier this month. Uh, Bremerhaven and Hamburg uh, are two of the most important seaports uh, that the, on which the alliance depends for mil- moving military equipment, not just commercial cargo. He recalled a 2017 cyber attack that spread rapidly through corporate networks of multinationals with operations or suppliers in Eastern Europe. The Danish shipping giant Maersk said the attack caused outages at its computer systems across the world, so the company lost track of its freight. He said that is when he realized how vulnerable the West is, and that if Bremerhaven can't be used, it will be very difficult for the United States to reinforce and to fulfill its part of operation plans. In light of that, Hodges questioned Berlin's decision to allow Chinese group Costco Shipping Holdings to buy a stake in a terminal in Hamburg, the country's largest port. There's a lot of um, 
anxiety about uh, China gaining control of one of the three main terminal operators in, in Hamburg, because once they're there, they're inside the ecosystem of the harbor. And um, these harbors will be essential for bringing in American and British and other Canadian and other allies in a pre-crisis or crisis. And, and so knowing that the Chinese may be able to influence or disrupt activities at critical transportation infrastructure, that's a problem. The Defense Ministry in Berlin declined to comment on Hodges' security concerns. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Kim Jong-un's daughter has made an unexpected appearance at a recent missile test. It's raising speculation that she could be a successor in the making. If true, analysts say it would be an unprecedented uphill struggle in the male-dominated dynasty. Here are the details. Saturday marked the first official confirmation that Kim has children. The North Korean leader's daughter, who was not named in state media, appeared in coverage that day of a ballistic missile launch watching the firing and holding her father's hand as he examined the weapon. Women, including Kim's sister Yo Jong, have held positions of power over the years, but would his daughter have a shot at the very top? North Korean defector Hyung In-A is a visiting research fellow at the AOA Institute of Unification Studies. When I was in North Korea, I had a perception that a leader should be a man in North Korea, it's said that women have equal rights, but women are still seen as supporting figures for men. Marking Mother's Day on November the 16th, the North had published an editorial. It says a mother's role is to raise children well and make them contribute to the country. The existence of Kim's daughter was first revealed by US basketball star Dennis Rodman. He visited North Korea in 2013 and spent time with Kim's family, later telling a British newspaper he had a baby daughter named some analysts argue that despite North Korea's deeply patriarchal society, gender may not disqualify a daughter or other woman from taking the reins. Kim has elevated several powerful women around him. His sister, Yo Jong, is spearheading a new, tougher campaign to put pressure on South Korea. And, according to that country's intelligence, in some cases, operates as a de facto second-in-command. Choi Song-hae is the country's first female foreign minister. It is far too early to know if Kim's daughter is being seen as next in line, analysts say, or whether her appearance on Friday was just a symbol, a prop used to portray Kim as a loving father and assure citizens that nuclear weapons would protect children. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, after a year of saying voting machines are prone to fraud, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro challenges Brazil's closest ever election. And oil prices fell today. That's as G7 countries plan to impose a price cap below $70 on Russian oil. Get the details right here on NTD News. President Bolsonaro of Brazil has contested the results of the country's October 30th election. He's asking the electoral authority to annul votes from half the nation's voting machines. NTD's Flinders Kingsley has the story. More than three weeks after the elections, outgoing Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro claims an audit shows a fault in over 280,000 voting machines, which constitute 56% of total machines. If the electoral authority annuls the proposed votes, Bolsonaro would be left with 51% of the remaining votes. This report does not express the opinion of the Liberal Party, but is the result of studies prepared by specialists who graduated from one of the most respected universities in the world. The audit found that all machines dating before 2020 lacked individual identification numbers in internal logs. And according to Bolsonaro, votes from some machines should be therefore invalidated. Then it is natural to ask for an inspection so that there is no doubt in relation to our electoral system. However, independent experts say the bug doesn't affect the reliability of results, and critics of the claim say there are other ways to identify the machines, such as by the city and voting district. They also say the voting machine's digital signature ensures reliability, and while the machines don't have internal identification numbers, the numbers do appear on printed receipts. 
I want to say that we are here today with only one intention, to contribute to the strengthening of democracy in our country. Although many of Bolsonaro's allies have conceded defeat, the outgoing president hasn't, and protesters across the nation continue to support him. I am here today because I want Brazil's freedom. We do not accept communism. The electoral court stated they won't consider the complaint unless an audit of the first electoral round is included. An electoral round where Bolsonaro's party saw a greater success in both congressional houses. Flinders Kingsley, NTD News. Turning to El Salvador, authorities recently gave more details about a naval drug bust. The country's navy seized over 3.1 tons of cocaine from one boat. That's a street value of 77 million U.S. dollars. Authorities intercepted the boat last Monday in El Salvador's Pacific waters. They found 90 packages of cocaine on board. The haul is the largest so far this year. Police officers and soldiers confiscated the drug packages and detained the alleged traffickers, three Ecuadorians. El Salvador's security and justice minister said the mission is one of many on the sea and land this year. In Mexico, a part-time journalist was shot dead in the Gulf Coast state of Veracruz. The state is home turf for several violent drug gangs. Pedro Pablo Camul worked as a radio reporter and host at AX Noticias and Esamor. A local news outlet said he was fired upon while driving a taxi and his attackers immediately fled. The outlet that Camul worked at demanded an official investigation and punishment for those responsible. This year is already the deadliest on record for Mexican journalists. According to free speech organization Article 19, there have been 18 documented killings and 331 attacks against local Mexican journalists. And that's in the first eight months of this year alone. Oil prices are falling, down about 3%, or more than $2 a barrel. Investors are keeping an eye on the G7 talks about a price cap plan for Russia. Oil futures traded lower today, with Brent crude futures falling to $85 a barrel and U.S. West Texas intermediate crude at $78 a barrel. U.S. and allies are mulling a price cap of $65 to $70 per barrel for Russian seaborne oil. A European official said the plan has the support of most EU countries, with the exception of Poland and Hungary. The price cap will make it difficult for Russia to sell its oil. It's part of the sanctions against Moscow meant to cut its revenue from oil exports and to financially curb its invasion of Ukraine. Oil is Russia's largest export item, representing about 10% of the world's supply. And speaking of Russia, President Vladimir Putin is visiting Armenia for a security summit, but relations between the allies seem to have soured at the moment. The meeting is between members of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, or CSTO. The group is a Russian-led military alliance made of six former Soviet states, including Armenia. But recently, Armenia blamed Russia for not defending them, while clashes erupted between Armenian and Azerbaijani forces along their border in September. The CSTO sent a team to investigate, but nothing further. Armenia's prime minister has accused the group of inaction on several occasions. Protests against Russia's war in Ukraine also broke out in the country ahead of the summit. Despite this, the Armenian government hasn't indicated plans to quit the alliance. Over to Scotland, their bid for a new vote on independence has failed. The UK Supreme Court has blocked their request unless they get approval from the British Parliament. The pro-independence Scottish National Party, or SNP, says they are not giving up. By an order in council under Section 30 of the Scotland Act or otherwise, the Scottish Parliament does not have the power to legislate for a referendum on Scottish independence. The SNP is not abandoning the referendum route. We must and we will find another democratic, lawful and constitutional means by which the Scottish people can express their will. The SNP leader said she respects the ruling of the UK Supreme Court, but stressed it would only strengthen the case for Scottish independence. Back in 2014, more than half of Scots refused to end their 300-year union with England, while two years later, a majority of Scots voted against Brexit. Some argue this justifies another referendum. The SNP says it will seek to establish majority support for independence ahead of the next national election in 2024. 
However, polls show voters remain split on the issue, and a vote would be too close to call. Germany has decided to start pulling its troops out of Mali by the middle of next year, wrapping up a decade-long UN mission. That's after facing difficulties in recent months. Berlin has about 1,000 troops deployed in the West African country. Their main task is to collect reconnaissance information for a UN peacekeeping mission. But Russian troops keep arriving, unsettling Germany. That's on top of numerous disputes with Mali's ruling government. The German foreign ministry had previously pushed for continued presence in Mali, warning about the possibility of leaving the country to Russians. Now the German defense minister says the withdrawal is set to complete by May 2024. One German House of Parliament still has yet to approve the action. The UN says it hasn't received official notification of the German withdrawal and says Mali still needs support from other countries. And just ahead, a Swedish startup company helps supermarkets grow plants on in-house vertical farms and then place them directly on store shelves. Australian teens learning farming skills at school. The farm program teaches them to grow crops and care for cattle, preparing them for a career in agriculture. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. What do solar arrays, dwarf tomato seeds, and pumpkin pie have in common? They're all part of the payload for SpaceX's 26th commercial resupply mission set to launch this weekend. The Dragon spacecraft was first slated to lift off to the International Space Station Tuesday from NASA's Kennedy Space Center. That launch was scrubbed because of bad weather. It's now scheduled for Saturday afternoon. The solar arrays for the ISS will be installed outside the floating laboratory during spacewalks. The arrays will give the space station more power. The astronauts will use the seeds to grow tomatoes and study plant nutrition cultivation on board the ISS. It's part of an ongoing study of how to provide continuous fresh food production in space. As for the pumpkin pie, it's part of a load of Thanksgiving-style treats for the crew. A Swedish startup is allowing supermarkets to grow their own food with the help of high-tech farm units. Swegreen says its brightly lit vertical farms don't require pesticides, nor do they produce emissions from crop transportation. Here's the story. This Stockholm supermarket is taking local food to another level. Basil, thyme, cilantro, dill and lettuce all grow about 200 meters from where they're sold at this vertical farm based inside the supermarket. Swedish startup Swigreen now operates eight such farm units across Sweden. Vertical farms are becoming more and more common worldwide. I've developed a solution for producing food in a hyper-local sense in supermarkets and restaurants and grocery stores. And we are doing it differently from the other ones because we also produce the food all the way from a seed to a fully grown plant inside the supermarket itself. The technology behind the farms is called hydroponics. Here, plants are grown in a small fiber boxes made of rock wool instead of soil. They're irrigated with nutrient-rich water. There's little to no need for pesticides. In a hydroponic system, plants grow faster and bring a higher yield. In the supermarket farm, crops are harvested at least three times a week. They're then bagged and simply carried by hand to the store shelf. It's a safety for us to have it. You know, we know exactly how much we can produce every day. There's no ups and downs. There's no uh, little to no, uh, you know, impact from the outside world on our production. Sweegreen offers its farm units to supermarkets as a subscription-based service. The price is based on the number of plants the supermarket harvests. The required hardware is included in the subscription. For a shopper, the shelf price isn't too dissimilar to what one might pay for a crop grown at a regular farm. Plant scientist Lawrence Post says the vertical farm takes advantage of heat, CO2 and water generated at a supermarket. We use the heat that is uh, already generated by the building here, which is a supermarket, to heat our facility. Uh, we also use the, the, basically the CO2 that people breathe out to, to, to concentrate and capture and release it here so we can raise our or CO2 levels, which means that the photosynthesis of a plant can increase. 
There are also some downsides compared with growing plants in soil. A hydroponic system depends on electricity and is therefore vulnerable to power outages. And it needs constant monitoring to preserve the controlled environment. The chief innovation officer sees promise in the technology. I think vertical farming has the potential to be a big part of the, the future of food. But also if you're talking about like taking us to the other planets, growing food on Mars, then you could talk about like vertical farming would be the only solution. In the coming years, Sweegreen hopes to make its farming model available to 80% of the world's supermarkets. Maybe one day they will make it to Mars. A school in Australia is teaching teenagers farming skills. The students learn to grow crops and care for cattle, preparing them for careers in the agricultural industry. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on the program. There isn't a mobile device or a screen in sight. Here, the farm is the classroom, and there's a lot to learn. It's like a totally different environment to, like, your normal side of the school. Like, it just feels completely different. Like, obviously there's still rules and stuff that you've got to do, but it's just, it's so much fun. These students are part of the Rural Industries School of Excellence at a high school about two and a half hours north of Brisbane in Australia. It's a catch-all for us to, to get those kids that are passionate, they've got an interest in agriculture, and giving us uh, an avenue to get those kids out, identify them, look after them, and really provide them with more opportunities. Gimpy High has two farms, spread over 60 acres. The agriculture students are involved in growing commercial quantities of crops, which are sold throughout Queensland. We're fairly sport and we can do our horticulture at scale, we can do our cattle at a, at a small scale, but it's enough that you know, it, it's more than one or two cows sitting in a paddock. The students here have a lot of options. The whole point of the program is to give them the opportunity to explore. Some are drawn to cattle work, while others are interested in crops or maybe machinery. By working on the farm, they gain first-hand experience. These young people could be the future of farming. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Just ahead, archaeologists are discovering artistic treasures from thousands of years ago buried at an ancient hot spring in Italy. We'll bring in the story in just a minute. Ancient history is coming to life at an archaeological dig in Italy. Scientists are discovering art and artifacts that are thousands of years old, buried beneath the sands of time. Let's take a look. Archaeologists free from the mud and murky water, a masterpiece from the distant past. A bronze statue of a boy dating back perhaps more than 2,000 years. Excavations over the last three years at this ancient hot spring in San Casciano dei Bagni in the Tuscan hills are bringing treasures to the surface. Uh, we found a bubble of time. Professor Jacopo Taboli leads the international team here. He's still amazed at what they've found. The first coins came out uh, with no corruption. They, they were perfect. And then slowly, slowly, it was one, it was two, it was there were thousands. And then the statue. So it was, of course, extremely emotional. The artifacts date back to as early as the second century BC, immaculately preserved by a combination of mud and mineral water. Ancient pilgrims would lower their offerings to the gods into the thermal water. Coins, bronze statues and likenesses of specific body parts, hoping that by then bathing in those waters, the gods would heal their ailments. At a time when a rising Rome was at war with the Etruscans, the original inhabitants of the area, the two peoples mingled peacefully in the springs in search of health, healing and fertility. At a restoration lab run by Italy's culture ministry, archaeologist Ada Saldi shows some of those offerings, including a bronze likeness of vital organs. You can see the smallest details, she says, the trachea, the lungs with all the veins and arteries, the heart, the diaphragm, the liver, the spleen and the intestines. Bronze feet, arms and legs were also found in the muck. 
So far, more than 6,000 coins have been fished out of the mud, plus bronze heads, statues, and other items. A veteran of Italy's Antiquities Restoration Department, Simona Pozzi's job is to clean the antiquities and try to preserve them. I've never seen a find like this. Several other springs in the area have yet to be excavated. The mud and water have yet to yield all their ancient secrets. The pandemic changed a lot of things for us. Many of us focused on our mental health, so we pursued happiness. But could kindness be a more worthwhile pursuit? Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Today we'll look at happiness and how to bring it into our daily lives. Researchers are tackling it from a few different directions. Mina Andiapan is a Canadian social scientist. She sees a correlation between ethical behavior and well-being. So is it possible to increase happiness and break free from anxiety and depression? Let's find out. The researchers wanted to know how people could move away from the pandemic-driven inward focus and ideals of self-care. Is it by spending money on themselves, say at the nail salon or watching a movie? They compared this group with the one where people focused on other people and how they might help with acts of kindness. Opening the door for an outer or donating goods to a charity store is one example. These low-cost options made it easy to commit to kindness. When using a variety of different behaviours centred on others, this group had a greater sense of well-being. They also had more stable mental health than the group who treated themselves. Those who centred their hearts on people less fortunate somehow felt their own troubles pale in comparison. There was a noticeable reduction in depression and anxiety. Gaining happiness centered on three factors. Doing something outside your normal routine carried more weight in the happiness stakes. Changing the types of kind acts provided variety. And receiving positive feedback confirms your help was appreciated. This amplifies positive feelings. In helping others, you really can help yourselves. Plenty of tails wagging at a European pup dancing championship in Germany. Norwegian and Italian teams clinched the top prizes. The European dog dance championships took place as part of Animal Fair in Stuttgart. Dogs and their owners took to the dance floor to compete across several categories, including heel work to music and freestyle. Judges were looking at technique and artistry, but also the interaction between dog and owner. Dog dance combines elements of obedience, such as attentive walking at heel with special tricks. It's all in a dance-like musical choreography. Typical tricks include leg slaloms, backward walking, sidewalks, spins, paw work, jumps over or through the owner's arms, running between legs, maneuvering, and chasing. The dogs are guided by signs and commands. After several preliminary heats, Norway won in the freestyle, while Italy triumphed in the heel work to music. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. And happy Thanksgiving from all of us here at NTD News. We hope you're able to spend time with your family and enjoy your favorite holiday traditions.